Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. There are some people in life who are more than unpleasant, more than annoying. They're real, genuine souls. My guest today has written the Preeminent Field Guide to Identifying, Dealing with, and Avoiding All of Life's Jerks, Bullies, Tyrants, and Trolls. His first book's The No A-Hole Rule. The second one's The A-Hole Survival Guide. His name is Bob Sutton. He's a Stanford professor of organization and management. And we begin our conversation together with how Bob defines what makes a jerk a jerk, what causes their jerkiness, and the cost of having such disagreeable people as part of an organization. We then get into the circumstances of when being a jerk yourself can actually be advantageous. We then turn to how to deal with all the jerks in your own life, including distancing yourself from them, deciding you're going to be better than them, and imagining you're a jerk collector encountering a new species of jerk. Bob explains smart ways to fight back against jerks and gets into the wisdom of documenting their jerkiness, why it's occasionally helpful to make an aggressive stand, and how even Steve Jobs learned to be less of an a-hole. We end our conversation with how to build a jerk-free workplace. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is slash jerks. All right, Bob Sutton, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. So you are a professor of management science at Stanford University, but because of an article you wrote and then two books you've written, you become known as the A-hole guy. The first book was the No A-hole Rule, and then the most recent one was the A-hole Survival Guide. How did this happen? How did you become the the A-hole guy? Well... Uh, there's two answers to that question. One is the way I was raised, which is my dad used to always tell me uh, to not be an a-hole. And because if you treat people like that, you do two things. Number one is you hurt people. And number two is uh, actually in life, people hold it against you and they and they kind of lie, lie in wait and stab you in the back. So, uh, so there was that. And then in about 2004, I got an interesting call from a woman named Julia Kirby, who was an editor at Harvard Business Review, and she said, do you have any ideas for breakthrough ideas? They used to run an annual breakthrough ideas section. And I said, I have an idea I'm interested in. It's not a breakthrough idea. I'd heard it my whole life. And it entails using a sort of dirty seven-letter word that you would never publish in a respectable publication like the Harvard Business Review. Well, Julia called my bluff and I sent in this article, which, by the way, had the word in it too many times because I thought they would cross it out, and they didn't. And uh, I got more response to that than any HBR article I've written actually before or since, and I've written quite a few of them. And so to me, that was a sign that uh, that maybe I should write a book. And I wrote this short book, The No A-Hole Rule, that for better or worse has sold more than all my other books combined. So so here I am. (laughs) Right. So this definitely, this is a topic that resonates with people. So, I mean, let's talk about, so what makes, we'll say jerk instead of a-hole. What makes a jerk a jerk in your experience in thinking about this topic? Well, so academics argue about everything, but this is my take. My take is, is that it's somebody who leaves others feeling demeaned, disrespected, and or de-energized. And so, and there's a, an important distinction here that um, I think is useful to keep in mind. One is they're certified jerks. Those are the people in our lives who everywhere they go, they leave people feeling like dirt. Usually that's some sort of personality defect. But uh, the fact is, and it is that all of us under the wrong conditions can be uh, temporary jerks and perhaps wittingly, perhaps unwittingly leave others feeling bad. So that's kind of how I make the distinction, which is uh, people who make others feel bad. So like there's perma jerks, right? People who yes. just all the, yeah, and then people temporary. Okay. So I mean, yeah. what, 
yeah, as you're going through this, I mean, are there like diagnostics to try to figure out if you're dealing with a with a certified jerk or someone who's just having a, a an off moment? Yeah, I, well, what the main diagnostics is essentially if if everybody you know says, oh. He or she is a jerk, and that's just how they treat everybody. Then, then to me, that's sort of a sort of a, a diagnostic sign. I mean, just you know, to to give you an example of of one of my uh, my favorite ones is there's there's a Hollywood producer named Scott Rudin, and he was actually written up on Wall Street Journal as Bossilla. And just as an example, he went through literally an executive assistant every two weeks and apparently did fire one for bringing him the wrong breakfast muffin and was just sort of famous for that. And Chris Rock even said that Scott Rudin isn't racist. He just hates everybody. So I I think somebody like that who just sort of leaves a trail of everywhere they go, just sort of like raging and burning people. I I think that that's a diagnostic question. (laughs) So we know who these people are. Right. But in, in a point you make in A-Hole Survival Guide is when you are trying to figure out if someone's an a-hole or a jerk, like you want to be slow to give. You don't want that to be the first answer you go to. Like, oh, that guy's just a jerk because it might not be. Yeah. So that's that's also really true because one of the first things that happens is, is that we as human beings tend to have negative reactions to people who are different than us who have opinions we dislike, who look funny. So yes, there's all sorts of reasons. And and, and in fact, there's another side to this, which is really important to talk about, that there's all sorts of evidence that show that we're really fast to label other people as, as jerks and really slow to label ourselves. And if you look at the biases, it should probably be the opposite, that you should be fast to label yourself and slow to label others. Yeah, that's a good point. I've often asked myself when I'm having like, there's a conflict, right, between someone. I'm always asking like, am I the jerk here? Like, is this, right. is this me or like, am I, because I, I, I never know. I'm like, and, and I'm, I'm curious, I'm always, I don't want to like go to like immediately, oh, that guy's a jerk when it could be me. So, so, so there's both evidence and stories here that the best thing in life is to have people who love you and trust you and will tell you when you're blowing it. And, and I, I even talk about in the book, I had this boss, Peter Glenn, my former department chair, who I wrote a nasty email to one of my undergraduates. I don't think I'm routinely nasty, but like everybody else, I sometimes lose it. And he called me into my office and said, you do not treat students that way and you will apologize to him. And you know, he was right. And so having people, there's a difference between people who say bad things to you just because they want to hurt your feelings. But Peter was doing that out of caring for me and caring for the student. And he was right. And I, I also uh, talk about this notion that Winston Churchill, his wife, Clementine, that was one of the um, functions that she served, is that when he was nastier and competent, she'd tell him. So for those of us who have partners in life who will tell us the truth, they're, they're actually quite valuable. Yeah, so it sounds like there's, there's sort of like a Dunning-Kruger effect for jerks. Like sometimes jerks don't even know uh, they're jerks, but they, they, they think they're less jerky than, and everyone else is just a jerk, right? So it's like Dunning-Kruger is like, you don't think you're dumb, you think everyone else is dumb. Right, yeah. And, and the, other, the other part about Dunning-Kruger is the dumber and more incompetent you are at something, the more that you tend to overestimate your skills and abilities. And that does turn out to be true for social skills too. So yeah, there's definitely a, a Dunning-Kruger effect for jerks. And I, I think that sometimes some of the nicest people worry the most about coming across as jerks and maybe even worry too much because then they start being afraid 
to tell the truth, if you will. So this might be, you know, we're, we're going to go into psychology here. Like, what makes a jerk a jerk? I think we understand like temporary jerks. Sometimes you just have an off day. You're in a bad mood, right. whatever. We and you understand that. But like, we're talking about like the perma jerks. What What do you think is going on there? So to me, well, first of all, there's a whole bunch of genetic ways that people are raised that have some sort of effect. But to me, if you look at somebody who tends to be a jerk over time and look at the situation they're in, they tend to be in situations where they're under constant time pressure. They're really competitive. So if you see everything is I win, you lose game, that's going to make you a jerk because your job is to is to sort of crush them. Sleep deprivation, if you are consistently sleep deprived, that's a great way to turn into a jerk. And maybe the most powerful and consistent effect is it turns out that negative emotions, nastiness, anger, disrespect, they're incredibly contagious. So if, if you are offered a job um, or get into a relationship with a bunch of people who are jerks, the odds are that you are going to start acting like them. So, yeah, I mean, that was a, so it sounds like environment can have a big impact on, on whether you're a jerk or not. Yeah. I think you quoted some person who was talking about like, before you, you know, you decide or diagnose yourself with depression, just make sure you're not surrounded by a bunch of jerks. Yep. Yep. And, and, and so, and, and one thing that I think we should talk a little bit about, about the evidence here is that, so, so I wrote, we're calling it the no a-hole or no jerk rule in 2007. And then, and then I wrote the next book, the jerk survival guide or a-hole survival guide in 2017. There's been an absolute explosion in academia of, of all things about jerks. And if you just look at the weight of the evidence, being around people who treat you like dirt, it's bad for your physical health. It's bad for your mental health. It's bad for your relationship with your partner in life. And on the other side, there's all sorts of evidence that it not only drives out the best people, it makes them less productive. It makes them more likely to steal. We can talk about some of the advantages of being a jerk. There's one or two I can think of, but on the whole, <laughs> it's not a pretty thing for our, our physical or mental health or for our productivity. Right. Going back to your, you're coming at this from a management perspective. So you're focusing particularly on how being jerk or how jerks affect organizations and businesses. I mean, what are the costs? Like what are the productivity costs, et cetera, for, of jerks? Well, so, so we can show over and over again in, in the laboratory and field studies that, that for example, there's a great study of some 250 fast food chains. And if the boss was nasty and treated the employees in a disrespectful way. The best ones would quit. They'd steal more food. They'd waste more food. They'd be less satisfied with their jobs. There's all sorts of effects. But perhaps my favorite example, and this is one that goes way back, there was a, I, I got to still disguise this firm some, but it was a firm that sold very expensive stuff. So imagine very expensive software. And the way that firms like this work is that the star salespeople get paid an, act, an absolute fortune. They can get over a million dollars easily. So they had this star salesperson, and we're going to call him Ethan. And Ethan was such a jerk that he would just flame everybody. He'd treat everybody with disrespect. And, and so what happened was that finally the folks in HR got so mad at him, by the way, after his wife screamed at them about a copay for the health insurance and swore at them and, and said, you know, my husband's the most important person in the firm, blah, blah, blah. So the, the folks in HR got mad and, and they, they calculated what I call the TCJ, the total cost of jerks. And essentially, they figured out that this guy's jerkiness between all the lawsuits they had to settle, all the new assistants they had to keep um, hiring, all the time they wasted on him, it was costing $160,000 a year. And to me, that's just like, 
wow. And, and they, and they, to their credit, they did sort of pay him less the next year with a, a bonus. But so you can see specific examples like that. And you can also, you can also see uh, the academic literature as well. We could talk about the upside too, because that's always kind of fun. Yeah, we'll get to the upside in a bit, but I want to, we're going we're gonna to hit this a little bit harder here. Okay. okay. But, but, it, but like, and also it's not just coworkers where people can be jerks, it's customers. And there's like lots of research that shows that people who have to work with jerky customers or clients, like that can also be a big downer on productivity and well-being at the, at the, at, at work. Oh, oh, all sorts of negative effects. And in fact, when people face nasty customers and clients, it, it, it does make them physically sick. They are more likely to quit. And there's another, just for those of your listeners who might be jerky clients, there's another side to this, which is there's all sorts of evidence, for example, with uh, consulting firms, that if you treat people badly who are, when, when you're the customer, that you get a whole bunch of things happen. One is you tend to get charged more. And the other thing that happens, and I, and I hear this from my students over and over again who go to the fancy sort of blue ribbon consulting firms, is that if a client is known to be a jerk, they tend to get the consultants who are least good because you know the, the consultants who are in demand and, and are great, they can go to whatever clients they want. So you got to be really careful if you're treating other people like dirt, you're going to have problems. And, and sometimes you also might get fired. One of my favorite examples is there's this guy named Rob Fry. So Rob Fry is a hero in New Zealand. He turned around and saved New Zealand air. And if you know about New Zealand, there's not many ways off the island. Well, now there's like no way off the island with um, COVID. But there's just a few airlines. And so there was a really rich guy in New Zealand who abused his staff. And so, so what Rob Fry did, and I was at a conference. I saw him read this letter to all of us. It was, it was hysterical. And, and what he did was he wrote this guy and he said, you are not allowed to fly on our airline any longer. And he CC'd the email to his entire staff. Now that, I thought that was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, standing up for his staff there. Yes. So let's talk about, so we've been talking about so the, the downsides of being a jerk. You, you mentioned there are some upsides sometimes of being a jerk. What are those? Well, well so let, let's start with the, the uh, kind of the temporary part. So it is sort of interesting, and, and I don't know it's being a jerk, but sort of losing your temper, treating people with disrespect. There's actually some interesting evidence that especially if you're not a jerk all the time, that having strategic temper tantrums may actually work to motivate people when they're feeling complacent or they're being incompetent. And in particular, there's this really interesting study done by a Berkeley professor I, I know well named Barry Staw. And what he did was essentially he put a tape recorder in the locker room at halftime of during college and high school basketball games. And he recorded the coach's speeches across the season. He did this for a bunch of teams. And what the finding was, was that the coaches who yelled at the teams all the time, that didn't work. But coaches who usually didn't yell, if they occasionally had a temper tantrum and gave them grief about how lazy they were being and, and how disappointed that he or she was in them and so on, that they would do better in the second half of the game. So, so the lesson there is kind of interesting is that being all jerk all the time might not work for motivating people, but if it's somebody where who, it's usually somebody who's reasonable and they lose their temper at you, it actually might work occasionally. So that's, that's one. We can talk about some other examples, but that, that, that always sort of fascinated me. I know that's true. I, I'm, if I think back to when I played football, 
there was like coaches yelled at you all the time. And when they yelled at you at halftime, nothing. But there's like the coach who's really cool and you just you liked him a lot. And then he came in and just reamed you at halftime. I paid attention. And then you. Yeah. You, yeah, you yeah, yeah. So yeah, that, and that's kind of the, so we used to have uh, Jim Harbaugh as, as our coach here at Stanford. And then he went on to the 49ers. So I had a lot of students who had Jim Harbaugh. And that's kind of the problem that Jim Harbaugh has is he just yells at everybody all the time. And eventually it sort of, it sort of gets old. So, so yeah, that, I, that sounds right. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. And now back to the show. So what are some other examples of where being a jerk could be beneficial? So, so, so anytime you're in a, so if you think about it, anytime you're in a situation where it's a zero sum game, it's kind of a I win, you lose sort of game, then leaving people feeling demeaned and de-energized, it probably works. And, and, and that sort of the, the kind of Michael Jordan sort of effect and just actually, you know, you know, the series about Michael Jordan and everything is, is that, well, he was, he was sort of in the situation, although maybe he should have not been so nasty to his teammates. But if you're in this sort of situation where by making other people feel like dirt, you do better and you don't have to cooperate with them, then it, it, it actually probably works. And I'm not necessarily recommending it, but it actually can be effective in those situations. If you have multiple interactions with people, it doesn't work though. Or, and or you ever need to cooperate with them. Right. So I, mean, I think they, they, like the tit for tat studies, right? That, that kind of, that, that sort of stores that. If you know you're not going to interact with someone, then it's, it's in your interest to just be like, I'm going to go after this person and not be cooperative. But if you know you're going to have to interact with them you know, over and over again on the long term, then you want to cooperate. You know, by the way, that's why selling cars just is terrible because <laughs> it's like, I, and I feel sorry for car salespeople, is they're mostly in, in situations where they're never going to see the customer again. And, ah, uh, so, uh, yeah, so there's some occupations where that does happen. Right. And then, I mean, this can also, that can lead to some situations where if you're getting taken advantage of and you feel like you're in a zero-sum game, you might start doing things that, you know, just to, you know, cut off the nose to spite yourself, right? Like, just so you can send out a message, right? Even though you're not, you might not get back to the guy, you want to send out a message to everyone else, like, don't mess with me because I'm willing to, like, just nuke myself yep. just to get back at this person. <laughs> Right. So, so to me, that so that's one of those downward spirals of human conflict, where, if you will, our worst angels or our worst selves come out. And, and to me, that's kind of the problem with situations where there's sort of a-hole poisoning, is, is that everybody sort of races to the bottom. Just to sort of think about this a little more, one thing I've thought about is, well, what are some of the hallmarks of uh, successful jerks? Steve Jobs was one of them, by the way. I mean, and you can even argue whether or not he's a jerk if you want to go there. But but if you look at some of the things that he and some other successful jerks do, first of all, they're not all jerk all the time. They're somewhat strategic about it. Some of the people who loved Steve Jobs the most were the tech writers. He never was nasty to them. And so so that's one, because if you're all jerk all the time, people just sort of give up on you. And then the other thing that smart jerks do is they have, we call them toxic handlers. They essentially have people who, after everybody's all upset, to go sort of clean up the mess and calm down everybody. So uh, Larry Ellison was sort of famous, and he's calmed down in his old age, but sort of famous for having people who kind of, if you will, cleaned up the mess behind him. So, so if you're going to be a jerk, there are certain things you can do, and 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 one is to be all, not be all jerk all the time. The others have a toxic handler, and uh, and the third thing is to be careful because one thing that happens, and you see this in. in politics, I'm going to stay out of politics and in business too, is that when people are powerful and they treat other people badly, 
Very often, those people won't fight back. But when they start losing power, then boom, it's amazing how quickly they come down because their weak enemies are lying in wait. And then boom, when the moment comes, everything comes. It's very Machiavellian, right? Let's talk about this. So we know being like jerks aren't great, but we have to deal with them. So how do we do that? What's the first step of dealing with a jerk? So so the question of how you deal with jerks, that's that's uh, essentially why I wrote the A-Hole Survival Guide, which is that I wrote this book that I thought was kind of a management book about how to lead to create a jerk-free workplace. But then I got 8,000 or more emails and they were different, but they were also all the same, which was essentially, I've got a jerk in my life. What do I do? And, and I'm a psychologist, but I'm not a therapist. So I started digging into this. And for me, one of the first things to do is to sort of assess the situation. And if you are in a position where you are encountering either for a short period of time or a long period of time, somebody who is abusive, my first bit of advice is if you can get out, get out of there. And and there's big ways and there's small ways. The big ways is quitting your job, moving your seat. Anything you can do to sort of get away from them, because if you look at the evidence, it's like a toxic substance. So that's one is is just simply leave the scene if you can. It's not possible for all of us to quit our jobs or to leave this situation. The second thing, and and there's great evidence that uh, it's unfortunately almost too good, which is essentially is that if you get within 25 feet for your job, sitting near a jerk, and this was done in open offices, the odds are you're going to sort of catch that contagious poisoning. So if you are sitting near a jerk, try to create physical distance from them and and, and to engage with them as infrequently as possible. So I, I talk about in the book, one of my friends, so she had a really nasty dissertation advisor who would um, call her and send her nasty emails at all hours of the day and night. And what she started learning to do was to slow down the rhythm. So she'd wait a week and she wouldn't answer any of them. She'd give a polite answer and then she'd wait another week just to sort of slow the rhythm of the interaction. So, so I guess that's one. A third one, which is really useful, is if you're in a situation where you can't get out and you're stuck with it, that in this is kind of in the domain of cognitive behavioral therapy, finding ways to sort of reframe the situation so it doesn't hurt your soul quite so much. That's another solution. One of my favorites, and maybe we can stop here for, after I'm done with this one. One of my favorites is, is one, of, one of my heroes and friends. Her name is Becky Margiata. So she went to West Point, uh, one of the early women at, at West Point. And she described how when you're a first-year plebe at West Point, you have somebody in your face, an inch from your nose, screaming at you all the time, the upperclassmen. And so what she started doing was just seeing them as the funniest comedians she ever saw in her life, not taking them seriously. So sometimes reframing something as being funny rather than threatening, that's one of the ways to deal with it. But this challenge of reframing something is not being quite so threatening. We can talk about fighting back a little bit too, because I'm talking about these more passive ways. Yeah, well, let's dig into this passive stuff because I thought it was really interesting. Some of the studies that you, you've uncovered with this stuff. So, like, just avoiding the person in the first place. I think you highlighted a study. You know, you don't necessarily have to quit your job. It could just be like if you're in a company, like moving teams, oh. and that can make all the difference in the world. Just like, all right, I'm going to go to this team instead of working with this guy. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, so there's a whole bunch of, of research that shows once you get about 50 feet away from somebody in, in, in a sort of old-fashioned office, when we used to work in offices, many of us, once you get 50 feet away from them, 
you're hardly ever going to see him. If you, and in fact, if somebody works on a different floor of the same building, very often it's as good as having them in another country. So, so yeah, so that, so, so that's one thing you can do. Some of the other stuff that I think is, is really quite interesting in terms of this kind of coping stuff is, is this notion of sort of framing yourself is better than the person. So there's, there's a coffee chain out here called Phil's Coffee. And uh, Jacob Jabber, who's the CEO of Phil's Coffee, what he teaches his folks, and they have, really do have great baristas, is that when a customer treats you badly, what you do is you say to yourself, I'm not going to settle to their level. I'm going to kill them with kindness to show that I'm a better human being than they are. And he said that does two things. One is it actually, it actually calms down the customers and, and, and he doesn't want baristas who are nasty. But the other thing is, is that it makes the employee feel as if they have control over the situation. And then the last one, and I didn't come up with this, but one of my colleagues at Stanford who is, he's so good at dealing with nasty people. What he does is he pretends that essentially he's, instead of being an insect collector, he's sort of like a jerk collector. He collects different categories of jerks. And when somebody's treating him like dirt, he says to himself, I'm so lucky. I've got such an interesting specimen here. So he's got this sort of weird reframing. And oddly enough, even though I write all these books on jerks, I can't do that, but he can. So that's just, I mean, some of the weird things we do to our minds to get through difficult situations just amaze me as human beings. Yeah, with this reframing stuff, I think we've all done that before where, okay, you, you try to find the humor in the situation or you just sort of tune out and kind of I don't know, sort of turn into a robot almost just to protect your soul. But what's, I mean, I think one of the dangers with reframing is that it can uh, allow you to be abused more than you probably should. Like, so how do you, yep. how do you avoid that? So... As I as I've already said, get out if you can. But it, it is interesting. So if you look at there's both studies and cases of people who successfully fight back against those who are abusing us, there are certain things that they do that are quite consistent. One thing that they do, document. I'm not a lawyer, but every lawyer will tell you the more that you document, the better case that you have. And, and the second thing to do is to get allies. And just one of my favorite examples, actually from animal control officer who wrote me years ago, and she writes me, she said, so we had this really, really abusive and by the way, racist coworker who was flaming all of us. And so she said, I went to my boss and I said, it was a, the, the abuser was also a woman. I said, she's treating us like dirt. She's terrible. And my boss said, I can't do anything about it. And what they did was they put together what they called the A-hole diaries. So these five or six coworkers, they just sort of kept a book where they wrote everything she did for two weeks. And then they brought it to their boss. And then uh, that jerk was gone within about 24 hours. And that's, it's not always that easy to do it. But to me, you've got the bonding together with other folks in the documentation and then going to people with power. That won't always work, but sometimes it will be effective. Right. So that's a way of fighting back. So you, you haven't, you weren't able to avoid the reframing is not working. So you fight back. And so this is a smart way to fight back, document right. and develop allies. But I think typically when they think about fighting back, at a jerk, like you're thinking like the George Costanza thing, like the jerk store called and they ran out of you. And like that typically, right, right. <laughs> that typically doesn't work. That typically doesn't work, especially if, when people have more power than you, uh, <laughs> it usually doesn't work. Although, so there, there, there's a guy named Bennett Tepper who studies abusive supervision. And he does have some interesting evidence that when people have abusive bosses and they publicly call out the boss and fight back, 
that it actually is better for their mental health, which actually kind of surprised me. But And it surprised him as well. But there does seem to be some evidence that people who fight back aggressively, that in some situations, it can be better for him. It's a case where I think we need some more research. And that's something that if I was going to advise somebody, I'd say be really careful not to do that to somebody who has more power than you. But sometimes that it, that it might be effective. Oh, oh, there's one thing we really should talk about here too, which is that we're assuming, at least I'm assuming in this conversation for now, that the person who's being abusive knows that they're being abusive. On average, most of the time when people leave others feeling bad, they aren't aware of it. So one of the best and most effective ways to fight back is to at least try to have a backstage conversation with the person where you say to him or her, you are making me and others feel badly, and here's what you are doing. Could you please work on your behavior? And, and that turns out to actually work in a lot of cases. And then something else that, that, that also, and I've already talked about this, that's, that's really important, is that for people who are jerky or are leaving others feeling bad, if they can have mentors or people in their life to help turn them around, that can be very effective. In, in fact, that's, that's what happened with Steve Jobs. We hear all the stories about what a jerk he was. But, and I have this I, I'm very good authority. There's a guy named Ed Catmill, president of Pixar for decades, who worked with Steve Jobs for 25 years. And one of the things that Ed argues is that as Steve got older, he actually got nicer and nicer. He would still be aggressive when necessary, but he got much more strategic and and on average treating people better. But he said the press hardly noticed because all the old stories were out there. So and 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 what he had was was he had a coach. He had a guy named Bill Campbell who was on his board at Apple and, and was a dear friend of his who helped Steve become a better person. So so even you hear the Steve Jobs story, it's it's a sign that it's possible for all of us to change. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Instead of, instead of making your immediate thing, I'm going to fight back aggressively. Do the backstage thing. So I think we've developed this culture now where you're seeing, like, instead of doing that, people just want to go public with it Ugh. and get back at the person. And then it just, it backfires. Nothing nothing gets improved because like, the person who's getting, you know, trounced on or whatever, they dig in their heels because they get defensive, which is understandable. I'm sure if they would have just had a private conversation, they could have fixed all that stuff. Yeah. So, so ironically, so this is a great point. One of the best ways to turn somebody into a jerk is to call them one. So, so, so it not only is a jerky move to call them one, it actually, even if they're not being one, you end up with, you were talking about the sort of tit for tat. It ends up the situation where everybody escalates. And, and so that, and that's one of the, the ironies is, you know, I, I, I write these books about, you know, about um, a-holes and jerks and stuff, but one of the worst ways to deal with them is, is to call them one. So there, so there's a, yes, I agree with what you're saying. So, I mean, I guess the idea would be like, instead of saying you're a jerk, say, hey, just in site specific behavior or actions and say, that's, you know, it's, it's doing, it's having this effect. And they'll be like, oh, I didn't realize that. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. Or they might be a just like certified sociopath and just like, I don't care. And at that point you realize, okay, well, I have to escalate this or just get yep. out of here. Yep. But so, so to me, when you say that, you're sort of uh, describing the attitude. And by the way, I mean, this, this is, is evidence-based. Most people who treat others badly aren't doing it intentionally. 
and aren't realizing the impact they're having on others. There might be some times, and we talk about it, you know, in sports, that, that essentially that there is uh, strategic intimidation, and that does work in certain situations. It works in the military. It may work in some litigation. But most of the time in life, collaboration and cooperation and treating people with respect is the most strategic move to make. All right. And again, this is, this is something that I guess it's, it's a skill to figure out when to do what. It's, it's a skill that takes practice. I agree with that completely. And uh, there's no substitute for, for doing it. And, and I see this because now teaching at Sanford for 37 years, I see some of my most interesting students sort of go through periods where they, they come out and they're really successful and they just think that they're so great. And then they kind of go through a bit of a struggle where the world starts bringing them down a little bit and they grow over time. It, it doesn't happen with all of them. I'm, when we, when we uh, look at sports, we see, see some people who become more and more mature over time. And then we see some people who don't get any better at all. So, so it doesn't work for everyone. But it's certainly, as you say, having, uh, having coaching and uh, having mentoring and experience does make a difference. So we talked about surviving jerks. So you, know, you just get away from them. It might mean quit your job, just distance yourself, fire clients if you mm-hmm. need to, give the client to the, the, bad, right. the bad person on your right. team. You're reframing the situation so it doesn't just affect you as much, kind of practice some cognitive behavioral therapy. And then you know, be strategic about fighting back when you do. But let's talk, I mean, let's talk about this. Like how, let's be positive here. How can we develop how can people create organizations where it's just naturally a, like jerk free? Like it's jerk free and anti, it's anti jerk free or anti jerk. Uh, uh, well, I, I love that. And, and, and by the way, that's how I originally got into this topic. I said, well, can't we have like a, a, a relatively jerk free site? So, how do you build a jerk free workplace? To me, it starts with the behavior of the senior executives and the managers. When they treat other people with respect, it becomes contagious. So that's kind of one solution to me. Another solution that I think is important is to be explicit when you're hiring people that we don't bring in people who are who are jerks. So I've, I've actually one of my favorite companies, and, and unfortunately um, he passed away. Is that there's this this uh, guy Paul Purcell who was a CEO of uh, Baird, and Baird had they did not use the censored version, but they had a no jerk rule, and they meant it in hiring and. And Paul Purcell, one time I'm talking to him on the phone and he said, so I tell them during an interview, if they act like a jerk, I'm going to fire him. And he does fire people and very successful company. The other thing that I think is probably the most important thing when I think about having a no jerk culture is that when somebody treats others with disrespect, that there's not only permission, it's essentially almost required to call people out for acting like jerks. And I think a good summary is that, so one of, one of my students, one, one of my wealthiest and most successful students, her name is Shona Brown. And so she was number four at Google for about 10 years, the highest ranking non-product person. And so I'm interviewing Shona for the No A-Hole book. And I said, so tell me about Google. And she said, well, so one of the reasons I think the culture works here is that it's not efficient to be a jerk here. And so if you want to get ahead, if you want to get your work done, even if you're not a nice person, you have to be nice to other folks. And I think that's one of the best overall summaries because there are cultures that I know of and I suspect you know of that treating other people with dirt is an efficient way to get, in, to get ahead. But at least traditionally, at least in the old days, backstabbing people, bad-mouthing people, treating them with disrespect, uh, that was not the way to get ahead at Google. No, it's, I think that idea of just being upfront, leadership being upfront, that you're just, a-holes are not allowed. 
that can go a long way of, of you know nipping that stuff in the bud. You know, here in Tulsa, the headquarters uh-huh. is the headquarters of Quick Trip, the convenience store chain. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. there's actually this story. So the current CEO is Chet Cadeau. His father founded Quick Trip, and his father, you know, sent out a letter because he started hearing that some of the managers were treating customers like crap. So his father sent out this letter that says, "No one wants to work for an asshole, and I won't allow it." Like to everybody. <laughs> And wow. so, like they had, like so, Quick Trip has like a, like an explicit no a hole rule, and they've had it, I think, since like the eighties or seven. I mean, it's been wow, a while. Wow, yeah. I didn't know that. That's fabulous. Yeah. So, and, and Quick Trip's fantastic. It's like my favorite. I love going in there because like it's, the customer service is super fantastic. I they're just friendly and they're quick, and it's my favorite place. So you know that kind of reminds me one of one of the biggest issues when it comes to this is essentially, what do you do with superstars who are jerks? And, and honestly, I think that's one of the biggest challenges. Certainly in sports, we have this problem, but in companies too, law firms, my wife ran a large law firm for some years. When you've got a superstar sort of rainmaker and he or she treats others like dirt, you've got a problem. And to me, that's sort of the test of a culture. It, it, not if it's somebody who's relatively powerless. And, and, and in the healthcare world, the, the hospital I think of that's really good about this, the healthcare chain, is the Cleveland Clinic. And, and this is one thing and that for years, and they still have it, they had this model that you could be a superstar surgeon. That's great. But if you treated people like dirt we were we will get rid of you and and, and I heard this from uh, Toby Cosgrove who was head of the Cleveland Clinic for years and I also had surgery there and and one of the reasons that I chose to be honest to have surgery at the Cleveland Clinic so so I flew 1500 miles to Cleveland rather than uh, staying at Stanford was they had a lot of jerks at Stanford in the heart surgery department. And when I went to Cleveland, it's like they actually were all sort of like these civilized, modest Midwesterners. And also their surgical outcomes were better too. So that definitely affected my decision too. But, you know, to your point that uh, being explicit about it and calling out people when they're bad, very important, especially powerful people. Well, Bob, where can people go to learn more about the the books you've written in your work? So just just probably my website, bobsutton.net and Everybody can Google everything now, so you can find out all sorts of, of things about me. But bobsutton.net is, is, where, uh, is where you can probably find the, the most efficient one-stop shopping. All right. Well, Bob Sutton, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. My guest today is Bob Sutton. He's an organizational psychologist, professor of management at Stanford. He's the author of the books, The No A-Hole Rule and The A-Hole Survival Guide. They're all available on Amazon.com. You can find out more information about his work at his website, bobsutton.net. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash jerks, where you can find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles we've written over the years. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you all you don't listen to the Win Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.